0: You're listening to Sibling Talk with Mary Jo Tumare and John Paulette. Commentary from a progressive point of view. Hello, I'm John Paulette.
1: Hi, Mary Jo Tumare.
0: Mary, I have to take us back a little bit in history. And as a lawyer, you may be familiar with this case, but if you don't mind... I'm going to introduce it to our listeners. In 1996, the Supreme Court decided a case called Hopwood v. Texas. And the basic facts of it are, are this. The University of Texas Law School had a affirmative action program, and they argued several things. But their essential argument was that it was good not only for the school but for society as a whole to have a diverse uh, student body. And therefore, affirmatively accepting Hispanic students, uh, African-American students, served everybody to everybody's benefit. Cheryl Hopwood, who was in her late uh, 30s, applied to that law school, and she was rejected. Uh, There were originally some other people involved with the case who were also rejected. And Cheryl said, and really nobody questioned this, uh, that her scores uh, on what would it be the LSAT and so forth were higher than those of some of the Hispanic and African-American students that were admitted. Uh, Therefore, her rights had been violated. And I, I think that's the the core of the case uh, and worked its way up up to the Supreme Court. Here's the reason I bring it up today. That case always seems to me to highlight two you know, I would say ethical principles. Maybe you'll see uh, legal principles in it. On the one hand, should we serve the common good, which is what the University of Texas Law School said they were doing. We are helping our school we're helping society, or should we always serve the individual's rights? Which is what Cheryl Hopwood seemed to make a good argument that her rights had been violated. And I, I wonder if that's not the same argument that's going on today, even about such things as wearing a mask, should we be concerned With the common good of the people of our nation or do i kind of standing in for cheryl hopwood have an absolute right to decide whether i'm going to wear a mask or not whether i'm going to go tonight to uh, mount rushmore and celebrate with the president there i do do you agree with me is this the philosophical problem
1: It is. And the legal problem, the political problem, like all the problems put together. And it's so interesting how this moment of time and partly because um, we have such disruptive leadership has caused us to face these issues in a very um, constricted amount of time. You know how we've said the last three and a half years have been like a law school class in uh, constitutional law. This time now is a, it's like a master class in resolving these ethical and to some degree legal issues. I mean, I had a conversation today where somebody was saying, you know, why can't you just make a law and enforce a law if you think there's the common good? So, well, we do that all the time. At the, at the end of the day, you do have to expect compliance because we are not a society of enforced compliance. So the, why the mask issue is complicated is because it's so simple. In other words, if you're Fauci, you just don't get it. Like the guy's look on his face is like, I don't understand what the issue is here. <laughs> why are we fighting about the mask? But if you're um, Trump, or Trump supporters, to them, it seems like government can't tell me what to do. And aren't we balancing those issues all the time in our society in a million different ways? It's why you can't drive 120 on the highway. We've talked about the seatbelt issue. You know, it's, it's why we have public health officials at all. It's why we stopped smoking in public. I mean, if you remember back to those days, some people were so incensed that they couldn't smoke anymore in a restaurant, on a plane. Now, the thought of someone smoking on a plane is so crazy to us, but people smoked everywhere. And over time, it took an acceptance by smokers that it was not okay to impose on the rest of society secondhand smoke. Unfortunately for this, we don't have... 10 years to get people to accept it. So that's really where I, why I think it's the stuff stands in stark relief. Well, and
0: I mean, you use the phrase and it's the right one balancing uh, between the common good and individual rights. And I think any sensible person would say that we're trying to strike that balance, but it appears to me that that's what we're not doing is striking that balance and instead we have divided on the long the lines of i i mean i'm going to label it an almost kind of a libertarian i don't know egoist a rugged individualist that says you cannot tell me that i have to wear a mask and it goes further i was watching today video of demonstrations that uh, Uh, took place in Branson, Missouri, racially related ones. And I hear people shouting there, why did you come to my town? We are okay the way we are. If we choose to live this way, which is to say, if we choose to live racially divided, the same argument that was made in the 50s and 60s under the fancy title, states' rights, what was it states' rights to do? In the Civil War, it was the state's rights to hold slaves. In the 50s and 60s, it was the state's rights to uh, continue to enforce segregation. And essentially what this guy is yelling is, it's my right to be prejudiced if I want to. And I think at the core, it's the same question. No, in this absolute insistence on my rugged individual rights, we are giving away the ability to take care of the common good.
1: But it's such a, that's such an interesting point you're making because the um my right to think what i want i would defend, right? we never want to be thought police. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be prejudiced in your own mind, you want to be a misogynist And you want to sit around your kitchen table with your family and say, I hate whatever people you hate or women or whatever. I I don't want to be in that business of policing that. It's that you cannot take it outside of your home and act on it. So that's the common good. We've all agreed that we're going to accept certain norms. And, and we are going to act within those norms as society for the good of all of us. And um, one thing that the Trump presidency has done, and it, it, I, I just step back and say, I'm sorry I will not be alive 50 years from now to read the history. The history 10 years from now will be not interesting in 20 years from now. But, you know, history is sometimes better when it's 100 years old. Yeah. And... Um, because the, um, the disruption that he promised and he has delivered is a disruption of norms that has, in a good way, ultimately, I think, forced us to face these issues. Like, is the common good important? You know, are the norms of, you know, how we treat each other, whether we like it or not, goodness for us as a whole people. And I I think I told you one time that my concern always has been the inst- will the institution hold, institutions hold? The presidency has done terrible this time. Congress has been terrible. The courts have a mixed record. But the people, the institution of the people, I think is the one that's emerging because you see these st- t- polls now. 75% of the country or whatever the number is supports more immigration and immigrant rights. John, that is awesome. Because Trump was in part elected on being anti-immigrant. And we the people said are saying, whoa, wait a minute. Just wait a good goddamn minute. Mm-hmm. Because we like immigrants and we're a country of immigrants. The country, 80% of people support the protesters. And he was elected in part on a racist platform. And now the people are saying, oh, wait a minute. Uh, we don't really agree with that racism thing. That doesn't mean we're not racist. It doesn't mean we're not xenophobic. It just means it's not how we view ourselves. It's not how we view the common good. So we're, I, to back to your point, I'm starting to trust America just a little more than I did a few months ago that we can start to recognize the common good and start to agree on certain things.
0: Well, and I mean, your trust is being placed in the right, right spot. America has been an individual, uh, what ending do I want to put it? Individualistic, individualism-based uh, society. It's been part of our nature. But there's a reason why it worked. At the same time that we insisted on individual rights, we also insisted on character and personal ideals and values that conformed to a civic character such that we could expect people to be individuals, exercise their right, but to exercise them in the right way. And much of our public education system was built around this, you know, if we go back probably before the 70s, I think we saw the education was filled with much of what I think David Brooks would talk about, that kind of sense of character. Now, I think what you're saying is that sense of character, we as Americans want to do the right thing. I think you're saying that's still there. I I do.
1: I really believe that. I think that the what's been reflected back to us as we're you know in the hopefully final months of the trump presidency we don't like we don't like the picture we're seeing of ourselves part of that's how the world is looking at us with horror and pity like oh my gosh you racist xenophobic sick anti-science country and we're like whoa wait a minute we are not that country yeah. And, yeah. and that I hope I mean, I'm such an optimist, but I really hope that that's what is happening. And that's what the polls are reflecting. The election be damned, because whoever's the president, we have to live in uh, in the world. We have to believe in ourselves as a as a people, as Americans, as as um, John Meacham always you know, describes it as an experiment. You know, we are not a country, we're an experiment. And I think the we're getting back to like, wait, 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 we're not messing the experiment. We're not throwing the poison in.
0: Well, and to your point, uh, and this is gonna sound a little bit optimistic, which is not my nature about this (laughs) at, at all. Uh, but you know, we all have looked at the video of the demonstrations, and everybody looks at it, comments on how racially diverse uh the demonstrations have been, and how many young white people uh, are out there in it. So I'm talking the other day, not actually talking, chatting and texting uh, with a student of mine graduated maybe three, uh, four years ago. Young lady is white. Uh, She has become super involved in the protests and the demonstrations, partly because she doesn't have a lot of school to go to uh, right now, I think. But she's really, really involved with this. So in the conversation, I asked her, you know, why? What, what got you so deeply in, involved in this? And this is what she answered me. Mr. Paulette, this stuff just isn't right. I know that's exact because it was seared in my mind. Now, if that's the case, that young Americans, old Americans are saying, you know what? This stuff just isn't right then that is the source of the optimism we're talking about.
1: Absolutely. And that is a great way to end the week.
0: It is. Oh, my gosh. I'm ending Friday on an optimistic tone. As a Catholic, I just wish I was going out to a fish fry. I'm sorry we're allowed to eat meat on Friday. (laughs) (laughs) That would make me feel so good. All right. You have a great weekend.
1: You too. Bye, John.
0: Sibling Talk is a
1: JMP production. The theme song from Sibling Talk was written by David Paulette.